there's got to be a way to allow a young careerist to say, this is the podcast I have to listen to, to allow a late stage careerist to refine their magic and the energy in the work they do. It has to start by collecting evidence. And that starts by talking with people and doing it in a structured way. Now, for me, that fuels not only the wisdom I need to do my job, but that fuels me with energy and even more wonder. So is this a show about a series of conversations about a 40-year career and how to have a great career? Sure. But pointedly, it is about how you approach strategic problem solving and planning. And you do that by asking better questions. Welcome to Smart Rookie, where we shine a light on remarkable lives and careers defined by wildly winding paths rather than tidy straight lines. Join us as we speak with people who are fueled by wonder, grounded in humility, and perhaps most importantly, forever having fun. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Tallerman. And I'm Chelsea Carlson. To all the smart rookies out there, welcome to our kitchen table. Let's dig in. So, Chelsea, what makes you a rookie? I feel like a rookie in the best possible way whenever we start a project because it's that feeling of knowing this is a brand new universe. I have no idea how it works. And trying to figure it out and asking questions and being super curious. And I love that we have permission and not just permission, but it's absolutely essential that we go in with this sort of I'm not the expert, you're the expert attitude, which is why I think this season is going to be so interesting because that's something we say all the time. And now we're calling that into question a little bit and asking ourselves to question the nature of expertise. Is it knowing things? Is it experiencing things? Is it something that other people bestow on you? Is it a social power? How does it work? I feel like actually there's six seasons we could do out of this question after just doing an initial romp around the internet because it's so complicated. Like immediately it's so complicated. What's the difference between a rookie and a smart rookie? I think to be a smart rookie is to take everything you've ever learned from anywhere else and apply it to being a noob at something. It's going in with not the knowledge of the thing you're exploring, but knowledge from other places and flexibly and creatively combining it in order to ask weirder questions or look under different stones or question status quo things, which is much harder to do once you're wearing the expert hat. I actually thought of an anecdote. (laughs) I was thinking about smart rookies that I've experienced and known and how they show up in the world. I was very lucky to grow up in a smallish town that still had a very vibrant art community. I grew up just up the hill from the Archie Bray Foundation, which is this amazing ceramics foundation that brings people in from around the world. But I remember having this teacher who was so accomplished. He had a PhD in chemistry, had done shows around the world, 
But he was insistent on teaching as part of his practice. I remember him saying in the first class that teaching was so important to him because rookies make such interesting choices that are hard to even imagine once you're an expert, once you're a professional, once you know all the rules. It's difficult to question the foundations. I think that's so interesting. I was reading a quote today that says, for the teacher, uncertainty is a virtue. And uncertainty is this all-pervasive companion to the desire to learn. And I think that we have this unquenchable thirst, a kind of insatiable curiosity that drives our practice. And I think if ever I sat in my own expertise, I wonder if the desire to learn would atrophy. When I was in my mid-30s and I was the internet expert because I had worked at the Harvard Business School and put all our programs up on Gopher and then the World Wide Web was born and then I got to work at Ogilvy and Mather on IBM. So I was the internet expert and I was insufferable. I walked around like no one could tell me anything and I wasn't very happy. And I am quite sure that when I kind of cracked my skull right open again and let knowledge pour in and just acknowledged, I knew very little about something that was going to change a thousand times over and over and over again. I think the joy of working came back to me. And because I teach as well, the joy of Teaching is actually the joy of learning from your own students, which is something we do all the time. We're in dialogue. And I have this sort of fundamental wonder about whether Socrates was always in dialogue, the Socratic method of always asking questions, because underneath it all, that's what actually does make an expert. What popped your expert bubble? What snapped you out of it? You know, I left Ogilvy and I started my own company. And when I didn't have the big corner office or the business card that had somebody else's name on it, I had to stand up on my own two feet. It was so humbling. And I lost a lot of the swagger that came with all this patina of expertise. And I realized it was just more fun. And also, I think it was the beginning of the destroying of hierarchy in my world, in my work life, and in my soul, that as soon as I realized boss meant nothing more than being able to pay the bills, I realized that everybody who came to the table was somebody who had something to add. And that's where kitchen table culture was born. My work life starting in 1998 became working around a big table with other people. And it's stuck since then. 25 years later, that's still how I work. If I'm not on Zoom, I'm around a table. And if I'm around that table, there's going to be good food at that table and good dialogue and joie de vie and good camaraderie. And tables tend to destroy hierarchy. And once you destroy that, you destroy the notion of being expert and you just keep talking. You just keep learning. I think you bring up a really interesting thing I've been thinking about with 
experts and expertise when you talk about when you had Ogilvy behind your name, you felt a certain way because there's power and prestige and history there in that name that's attached to yours. And I think as expertise changes or I don't know, there are different kinds of institutions like that that can bestow you with that feeling. But your experience immediately makes me question, what does it do to you? Is it good to rest on an external validation like that of your expertise? Oh, I love what you said about power. I think when you're reflecting power, you're probably incapable of being productive. But when you're using that power for purpose, possibly an overused term right now, you're actually capable of making progress. And what I mean by that is if my power is pattern recognition and the fast assimilation of large amounts of information because I love learning, then I can use that for the purpose of finding answers to many more questions. And all of those answers can then be used to share insights with the experts, our clients. That's what makes it fun. And it's really fun when those experts are super diverse, when those experts are people trying to figure out how to bring new generations of problem solvers into nuclear threat, or when those experts are trying to put an end to domestic violence, or when those experts are trying to consider how efficiency is not constraint, but actually the next best way to change the energy economy. This season, we're sponsored by Boss Molly Bourbon. We love them because they're the ultimate smart rookies. Three women sitting around playing poker, looking at all the bourbon that they're drinking and saying, why are they all Jack and John and Elijah? Where's the women? So what did they do? They started a side hustle and they made a bourbon, an incredible bourbon. You're going to hear a lot more about it in episode two. But before then, keep your eyes open and ask your bartender to pour you a Boss Molly. I love it. And I know you will, too. Okay, I have two presents for you. One is about chess and one is about the 90s. (laughs) So... You talk a lot about pattern recognition, so I have to bring you this. Maybe you've already heard this, but the thing about pattern recognition that I thought was really interesting when looking into experts, they did all these studies with chess masters trying to figure out, you know. No, you're no, like, no, no, I'm nodding. I'm like, bring it on. I'm a smart rookie. Tell me more. They did this study with chess to try to understand what's different about a chess master versus a casual chess player versus a complete amateur. And they did this study where they set up a board of chess that was from a real game and they would let everybody look at the board for five seconds and then they had to try to recreate the board and they could look back for five seconds as many times as they wanted until they completed it perfectly. And the the experts, the chess masters could do it super quickly. They would look at it. It only took them a few tries and they could get it. And down and down and down, the less experienced you are, the longer it took you to do it. So they're like, is it about memory? What is it? And then they tried doing the same thing. But instead of it being 
from a real game, it was just randomly situations that would never happen in an actual game of chess, impossible scenarios. And in that situation, chess masters had no advantage because they didn't have a better memory at all. They were better at recognizing patterns. And they'd seen those patterns actually play out in games or studied those games. So they had different ways to chunk the information, basically. But it was about pattern recognition. Short answer. So I had to bring you that story. I think it's really interesting. And I think where pattern recognition becomes a superpower is not if you're an expert at one set of patterns, but by understanding patterns of behavior, by overlaying on that history and culture and socioeconomics and environmental patterns or patterns in the natural world and not being afraid to cross all of those and fix them up and then say, wait a minute, what happens next? Or one of my favorite things to do is see some patterns and try to tell a story and see if that story holds together. Is there a beginning, a middle, and an end? Can you create a narrative arc out of those patterns? Can you tell a story that someone else can build upon? And then it's looking and fact-checking and trying to figure out, are those the right words for the story? Is the pattern something that could actually manifest in the world? That's when it gets really, really interesting. Okay, that leads beautifully into my next tidbit for you. So for our listeners, something we do a lot in research is where we're looking at words and patterns and when do things come up? When are things rising or falling? So of course, I went and looked at the engram on Google Books for experts, and I was fascinated to see this absolute straight up line starting in about 1980 for the word expert and then a very high plateau from 1992 to 2004 and then another drop off. What happened in 1992 other than me being born and what happened in 2004 and why is this peak expert time? My hypothesis is that you being born means lots of other millennials were born And I think there's this thing that happens when you speak with millennials, they eschew expertise. We know in culture right now that people are ignoring science and scientists. They're questioning everything for better or worse, actually. And what's happening is I know a guy for that. I know a gal for that, that as social structures have bent with social media, expertise and the hierarchical nature of that have leveled out. And people would rather confer with friends than go upwards to experts. So I have some feeling that the prevalence of social media, the ability to get out onto YouTube, Maybe it's a great equalization. I don't know. Maybe there have always been more experts than there have been spotlights. And maybe what confuses expertise at being good at something is that some people held the power of a spotlight or the power of that business card that I used to hold. I have 600 things to say about this. But one is people have done a lot of attempts at how do you decide who's an expert? But I was looking at 
one of them, and it was fascinating. It's a 16-point scale to decide how much of an expert someone is. And 11 of the 16 are basically about personality, that they're self-assured and confident and outgoing and charismatic and always improving themselves and ambitious. So much of the things on this list are not about knowledge. It's about being persuasive, essentially, with having that knowledge, which I think makes a lot of sense because an expert is given their power by other people accepting them as an expert in so many situations where experts fall because we expect them to be perfect, which is not a reasonable expectation. As we start thinking about experts, if you put them on this pedestal of perfection, if you put scientists on a pedestal of perfection, they're going to fail if you look at not being right 100% of the time as failing then you knock them off. I don't know. Do we have the wrong expectations of experts and therefore they're bound to fail? Or can we debunk these 60 points? What happens if you're an introvert? What happens if you're someone like Stephen Hawking who loses the ability to speak? What is this notion that all the traits of the extrovert and even persuasion have anything to do with expertise. To me, that's a flimflam man coming to sell you some snake oil. I have an allergic reaction to persuasion, and maybe that's because I grew up in the advertising business. And my friend Jerry Sharashevsky would have said, Hey, Elizabeth, we're in the professional persuasion business. And what I realized over time, maybe it really struck me 15 years ago is I don't want to persuade anybody of anything. I really don't. What I want to understand is whether or not their ambition and my ambition are aligned. And if that's the case, what's my role in supporting them on making progress toward their ambition? My sense of that is I don't need to persuade. I need to figure out what obstacles stand between someone and achieving those ambitions. And maybe if I can become good at identifying and removing obstacles, I can fulfill that beautiful sort of infinity symbol of using power for purpose and purpose for power. Okay, not to harp on persuasion more, but I'm just throwing models at us. So we have a lot of different things to work with. This is from an expert in rhetoric who talked about two types of experts, an autonomous expert, so someone that can possess expert knowledge in something, but not necessarily with recognition from other people, or attributed expertise, which is a performance that may or may not indicate genuine knowledge. And I feel like the ideal for most people that aspire to be experts is you would want to have both. <laughs> you want to be acknowledged, but you also want to know what you're talking about. But I think when we look out into the wide world of people that people call experts, the presence of people that are possibly only attributed expert undermines the entire category. People that are all persuasion and no substance give everybody else a bad reputation. There's no question that I somehow innately inherited a gift of articulation. I'm sure it was my mother who spouted Shakespeare all the time. And there's been more than one occasion where someone has said, 
oh, just get up and talk. You could sell ice to Eskimos. I could listen to you talk forever. But what drives me is the fear of using that kind of persuasiveness without the truth behind it. And whether that truth is gaining some level of expertise or trying to cram as much as I can or reading or learning, I've realized that standing up in front of a room and blowing smoke, you can get found out. And I live in fear that I'm going to get found out as not being an expert. So I gave up trying to be an expert. But what I didn't give up is learning how to learn and literally taking the widest straw possible to suck up information and realizing that the answers I gave were never the most energizing or joyful part of anything for me personally. It was the learning. On the other side of that is after we share strategies and insights with clients, it's when clients come back and say, hey, I took that and built this from it. And then the learning starts all over again for me. So it's a selfish pursuit, this notion of forever wanting to become an expert and never actually realizing it. It's like being able to read all the books in a library and never stopping, just pouring it all in. We'd love to hear what you observed in this episode. What did this episode leave you wondering about? What did you observe and what was said or left unsaid? Leave us a voice memo on the smartrookiepodcast.com, DM us on Instagram, or send us an email, smartrookie at thenucleusgroup.com. If you like what you heard today, please support us, subscribe for more, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. This episode of Smart Rookie is brought to you by brand and strategy collaborative, The Nucleus Group, with special thanks to our first season sponsor, Boss Molly Bourbon. Episode art is by Chelsea Carlson, theme music by Ashley Bradford, audio engineering by Sam Nash, and executive production by me, Gabriela Costa. See you next time.